0: Thank you. to Love is a Message, a podcast about music, the dance floor, sound systems, and counterculture. My name is Tim Lawrence. I'm joined, as always, by Jeremy Gilbert. Jem Gilbert. Hi, Jem. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> we were discussing the other day why I'm one of
1: the very few people who sometimes call you Jeremy, So, but we probably shouldn't get too deep into that. Uh, Jem. There's people who call me always who always say Jeremy and people who always say Jem and but only uh, my close family and like you and my parents (laughs) just use them interchangeably. (laughs) Yes, well, very privileged. (laughs) It's (laughs) also why I'm so horrible to you, like as well. Uh, Okay. (laughs) Right. Um, Yeah. Moving on swiftly.
0: So, uh, right, we we had started out thinking we were going to do. one episode on um, this fundamental shift that took place in the kind of, you know, Western and, and soon soon afterwards global economy around uh, Fordism to post-Fordism. And that one episode, uh, as we planned it, uh, quickly developed into three episodes. And so we're now on the second one, which is going to focus on, you know, quite specifically actually uh, what was going on between 1970 and 1972. We are drilling down on these years at the moment to a certain extent, um so but before we get into this particular period gem can you just like recap what we what we were saying last time around about you know what was going on with fordism
1: sure so this term fordism it refers to a whole particular way of organizing firstly, the manufacturing process, but then sort of industrial capitalism generally, and on a larger scale, like the whole set of social relations in an industrial capitalist society. And so it refers to the idea that there's a specific phase, really, in the history of American-led industrial capitalism, where you move away from the previous model of very low wages for industrial workers, like very poor working conditions, turning out manufactured goods, only selling sort of ba- very basic goods to poor people and, and sort of luxuries to the middle classes. And you shift from that to this Fordist model. And this Fordist model involves much more automation and mechanization of manufacturing, introduction of assembly lines into all kinds of manufacturing processes. Um, so that workers become sort of de-skilled, but also it involves like higher wages, uh, much more you know, opportunities for consumption on the part of workers. And after the New Deal in the US, and after the war in European countries, you get an expansive welfare state. You get much, you get a significant reduction of the gap between the rich and the poor. But you also get this very sort of conformist society in which, for example, you know men are supposed to be the breadwinners women are supposed to be housewives in a way which wasn't as ideologically entrenched, arguably, even in the pre-war period. This is despite the fact that in reality, more and more women are going out to work and are going to into a higher education, for example. Mm-hmm. And then by the end of the 60s, there are obvious pressures on all this, this sort of system from within to the extent that, for one thing, this very setup has produced a generation for the first time, really, the baby boomer generation who don't know the levels of insecurity and poverty that their parents and and all their previous ancestors would have known, and they have a much more expansive sense of what might be possible in many ways for the kind of society they could live in. And instead of just being sort of satisfied with their lot, very often they're asking, well, why then, if if we've come this far in the past generation, why shouldn't we go further? Why should we accept any oppression or hierarchy or... Also, why should we accept the, the various forms of repression and sort of social limitation that have been imposed on us in post-war culture? So why shouldn't women, you know, be much freer than they have been to express themselves in multiple ways? Black people should really be able to achieve the status of full citizens in countries like America and Britain. You know, gay people, even, you know, this is something that nobody had really proposed, uh, certainly in English-speaking countries in any serious way for, Ever before, you know, the idea that gay people should be, you know, should have their rights to express themselves sexually and to be who they are, protected and, you know, rather than being discriminated against. So all this and all this is putting a lot of pressure on the the 40th social settlement, as as we say. Now, and one thing we'll talk about over the next couple of episodes is Really, the the different accounts that historians and economists and social theorists have of like, well, what caused all that to break down, and what what is it that started to replace it? But I think what we're looking at today, really. Is the moment when it's really clear that whatever it is that's causing it to break down, it's breaking down.
0: Yeah, yeah. So one of the ways that we thought this through as the kind of most obvious way, really, um, in terms of music was um, to look at Motown, which was run by Barry Gordy, founded by Barry Gordy, based in Detroit and modelled on uh, the Ford Ford manufacturing plants. So, um, to kind of like try and understand what's going on, you know, not only historically but also musically in this transition, we were thinking uh, as we were planning for this this program that you know it would be quite good to carry on with that particular narrative to see you know what was what was going on in Motown during this transition, and um, you know we, we thought about indeed Stevie Wonder's kind of you know very significant development from being kind of one of the staple artists in Motown, uh, you know, released 12 albums with Barry Gordy. But then in uh, 1971, uh, I think on his 21st birthday, even uh, decided to let his contract expire, um, which was a kind of, you know, this, this sort of seismic shift within the, the record company and for Barry Gordy, of course. I know Barry Gordy was kind of like, his line was, you know, you build up a star and, you know, they get so good, they then want to walk away. Um, you know, similar things uh, were kind of afoot with other Motown uh, artists within, within the, the stable as well. Sticking with Stevie Wonder, there was this kind of, there was this point where one of the things it seems he wanted to do was to gain greater artistic uh, autonomy. He wanted to decide the direction of his musicianship um, and not be kind of part of this uh, production machine that was basically, I don't want to say churning out hits, but certainly, you know, in a very yes. systematic way, producing hits for, you know, mass consumption and via radio in particular. He let the contract expire and this became the, the precursor to his, you know, his greatest, you know, artistic period.
1: I mean I in, in a sense I guess Talking Book the 72 album is in some way I mean it's arguably the first time a soul artist has sort of asserted their status as an album artist rather than somebody mainly doing singles that might happen to be collated into an album mm. and it's a similar thing to what's happening in rock music and it's probably inspired a bit by what's happening in rock music mm. you know I, I think there's this big shift in Really, the the shift from rock and roll to rock as concepts. you know, I, I always say this basically this happens on the electric side of Dylan's album, bringing it all back home from the mid '60s, because when Dylan, who had been a sort of folk singer but interested, very interested, known for his lyrics and increasingly interested in sort of symbolist poetry rather than political protest, and he also gets interested in rock and roll and he's interested in what the Beatles are doing and he you know produces you know half of that album is. Is sort of electric. And it's sort of been it sort of casts this whole image, which is tremendously impressive then to people like John Lennon, which is the idea that you can be doing this music, this basically kind of electrified sort of rhythm and blues-derived music, but you can be doing it with a sort of intent in your lyrics in particular to create sort of great literary art in a tradition of lyric poetry that really goes back to the romantic poets at the end of the 18th century, early 19th century. And it's really this idea of the sort of the rock musician as a sort of rom- an artist in that romantic tradition, and that is clearly influencing uh, people like Stevie Wonder. Like just just a couple of years later in sort of soul music, I think they they also want to be sort of artists. Although I don't know, we probably won't we won't get into these distinctions here very much. But obviously, there is a really interesting distinction I think in the way that. Dylan becomes this image of the sort of the the, the the great individual sort of artist, you know, whereas Stevie Wonder, although he is this sort of genius, you know, because he's working in soul and black music, you know, there's always a sense. In some sense, he's much more of an auteur than Dylan because he's mm. involved in production. You know, Dylan never produces yeah. any, his own oh. stuff. Yeah. So Stevie is much more of an, an auteur, but he's also more of always more of a collaborator. And that's always, that's part of one of the differences we sort of... The soul tradition, I think, but yeah, I think, and clearly, in some ways, this is a sort of reaction, as you said, it's a reaction against a particular idea of work, you know, whether it's work in you know work in the factory or work as a as a singer and a you know songwriter, you know, which is turning away from this idea of kind of routinized, repetitive, like industrial work producing commodities for the market you know, towards an idea of sort of producing art for the sake of, you know, in some sense, because because producing art is the end, that's the desired goal of the project, if you like.
0: Yeah, and there's, uh, I mean, all, all these things start to happen in this period for Stevie wonder, I mean, he let's, you know, he starts to, he teams up with this, uh, with these two, uh, you know, producers, uh, Robert Marguliff and Malcolm Cecil, who are kind of very influential in developing, innovating uh, synthesizers and, and new forms of you know new forms of making sound. Uh, Stevie Wonder kind of integrated uh, into the album. Uh, it's around this time also that Barry Gordy uh, is, is soon after closes down the Motown office uh, and recording studio in Detroit and moves to Los Angeles. Seems to start pers- you know pursuing films as as much as music when he's out there. So this kind of the whole Detroit production line kind of breaks down. Stevie Wonder, I believe recorded these albums in uh, in new york uh, i think it was in the electric lady radio uh, sorry electric ladies studios um which are, where hendrix had also recorded which are much more kind of designed for kind of creative experience uh for people to be sort of hanging out and so there was sort of certain mood was kind of created there and it's and it's in there that he was kind of generated this extraordinary series of albums that you know, rather than kind of developing and and you know stylizing a kind of up upbeat, very catchy um, and you know accessible, and we could also say perhaps non largely non threatening Motown sound to something that's much more kind of explorative and draws you know very overtly on you know not just soul music but you know elements of, of funk and aspects of kind of this social consciousness kind of lyric writing that uh, goes with that. So let's re-listen to uh, a record from that, the album talking book. Uh, I think we thought about Superstition, didn't we? Because that's obviously an incredible record and, and the best known record from that album. But um, Big Brother is also really uh, interesting track there's kind of a lot of of harmonica on there and it's kind of really interesting the way that it's this track where Stevie Wonder starts becoming, you know, tapping into this idea of black consciousness Uh, the lyrics about kind of, you know living in a ghetto and, you know the way that, you know, white politicians turn a blind eye to, you know, black voters so, um, yeah, let's listen to that record Your name is Big Brother You say that you've got me all in a mug writing it down every
1: day Your name is I'll see Your you. name is I'll see you.
0: I'll change if you vote me in as a
1: prayer. Yeah, well that's really a sort of an extraordinary piece of music, and it's really it's interesting to think about a bit more about what's going on at that time with this sort of somewhat romantic idea ideal of, of the art and, and even of sort of everybody wanted to let, live their life as an artist mm. so there's a cultural historian called joseph campbell wrote a book called the romantic ethic and the spirit of modern consumerism i think it's called and he argues that actually sort of consumer capitalism and consumer society can be traced back to the romantic movement in the arts in the late 18th and early 19th century i mean it is really interesting i mean like, as far as i know like if you look at histories of celebrity culture that like, the first modern celebrity is, is, is lord byron you know you could get mugs and badges and jewelry with his pro- with his face on and <laughs> there wasn't really anyone like that who wasn't royalty uh, like or, or a political figure before that as far as i know and um and um, and it's this idea of what we would call what we sometimes call expressive individualism—the the idea that that what makes you an authentic and successful human being is your ability to express something unique about yourself, like to the rest of the world. And if you're a great artist, you express that through poetry or through music or what have you. But if you're just an ordinary schlub, you express it by buying like a, a badge of. Or Byron, or you know, or a particularly tasteful silk tie, or something. And Campbell's argument is that this really sort of escalates, and, and it's a, it's a kind of running current actually that, that keeps developing through Victorian times, through the 20th century, and then in one of the things that's happening at the end of the 60s is this is really sort of exploding, and it's really becoming a much more central part of the way in which people think about the world. And then you can think about you know the emergence, of sort of musically oriented subcultures like the hippies or the skinheads they can all be seen as like manifesting this actually this idea that you express your identity through the clothes you wear rather than the job you do or the community you belong to and the records you buy you know which is obviously a form of consumption yeah 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 no it's really interesting because also
0: there was i recently had to reread uh, this book by theodore rozak uh, the making of, of a counterculture I think Theodore Roszak was the guy who defined counter counterculture yeah, back in yeah, 1968. Yeah. I think it was in a it was a it was a book that was a, maybe that was the original year the book was published or it could have been 69. I think maybe there was an article that came out in 68 ahead of the book, uh, and this was a really just I mean uh, you know just supporting what you're saying. He was he was identifying the kind of this romantic um, sensibility. As being surprisingly core to the kind of countercultural, you know, way of way of life, um, that it was about, you know, the intent, the intensity of experience, the full creative life, you know, living every moment for, you know, living in the present for making the most of every moment, but also kind of certain kind of roller coaster kind of experience and kind of that can come with this, yeah. Just uh, so that becomes really integral to the idea of artistry. And to the people who are, you know, supporting the culture as well, who are following the culture, it's vicarious I guess a lot of this stuff is vicarious, isn't it? When we consume music, we're trying, we're re-experiencing what the musicians are experiencing. That's always been one of the kind of premises of art, consuming art, hasn't it? That we we, yeah, from, we get it, yeah. something from the artist. I guess the counter- counterculture is just trying to spread out the number of people who are going to be kind of, you know, living this experience themselves and seeing it as a kind of. Uh, the human rights almost
1: yes that's a really good way of looking at it I think yeah I mean obviously I mean it is and it is connected to things like developments in progressive education and the child centered and progressive education movement for example over, over much of the previous few decades have promoted basically a kind of romantic depra- romantically derived idea of what it would mean to cultivate. Sort of the best sensibilities of a human being, you know, to, to develop a certain kind of aesthetic sense as, as well as everything else. Mm-hmm. The French sociologists, Luc Boltanski and Yves Chiapello, they published this really famous book in, it was in French in 1999, it came out later in English. It's called The New Spirit of Capitalism. And they have this way of looking at the whole history of capitalism. And they say there are basically two perspectives from which you can criticize capitalism historically. And there's what they call the social critique, which says capitalism is unfair and unjust and exploitative, and what they call the artistic critique, which is basically capitalism is boring, you know, and that's what's wrong with it. And it, they're very ambivalent as to whether it's like better to do social critique than artistic critique. And certainly some of their critics in, on the French left have seen them as saying that and seen, seen them as being sort of censorious about things like the legacy of the counterculture, which they see as too much invested in the aesthetic critique, the, the artistic critique. But I, I think it's quite they're quite slippery actually as to whether that's really what they're saying or whether they're saying, I think they're actually they're more often saying, well, the most powerful moments of kind of cultural and political change are moments when these things come together. And for me, you know, I think our understanding of the counterculture actually is that it was about trying to very much bring together a kind of radical social critique of capitalism and patriarchy and white supremacy with this kind of aesthetic critique, the artistic critique, with the recognition, the kind of intuition that lots of people had that, um, that you know, indeed industrial forwarded capitalism produced a great deal of boredom. You know, it made, it made people feel safe and te- it made life seem tedious and... You know, an awful lot of like the lyrics of say British bands like the Kinks and the Stones from the mid '60s—they are just about feeling bored, like in the suburbs, and and t- and being tired of it. So, and I think, it, but I think it is really interesting because I would say one of the things we're thinking about in this show and in the next episode is this question of well, what really did drive this shift from Fordism to post-Fordism? And this is one of those phenomena that you you can and theorists have really interpret. Either way, you can see this as just a bunch of kind of spoiled kids you know, who felt a bit bored because they'd suddenly got like the thing that workers had been dreaming of for 200 years, which was like predictable, safe lives and a safe income and a social safety net. And you can say that, well, actually, this was just like the beginning of the end, that, you know, the peak of human progress was the the peak of the welfare state in the late 60s. And it's all been downhill from there because of those degenerate bohemians, like not realising how lucky they were and not being good socialist trade unionists and or you can say, well, actually, this always has been a powerful element of sort of anti capitalist critique, you know, and it's always to want something which is aesthetically and emotionally richer than, than you know, manufactured industrial culture or capitalist culture can produce. And that, and it, there was this real, there was real resistance, like real, really sort of powerful resistance to, capitalism in its most basic forms in its tendency to commodify everything and to alienate everything and you know in in this kind of search for more authentic and more intense forms of aesthetic experience
0: yeah yeah and i think i mean coming back to stevie wonder i mean you know without wanting to read too much or guess too much into the situation on some level you know he was he was presumably getting a bit bored he had produced 12 albums for motown and uh and they hadn't stretched out and he wanted to stretch out so the crisis of this mode of production if you like also becomes an opportunity as we were discussing yesterday i think there was some, uh some uh,
1: Simpsons kind of. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As, as Lisa Simpson tells, famously tells Homer, I don't know if it's true or not. She says the Chinese word for crisis is the same as the word for opportunity. And Homer famously replies, crisis unity. <laughs> and it's true. I mean, this is. Uh, we shouldn't say mode of production. People always do. In, in properly Marxist terms, the general mode of production we're in here is still capitalism. Right. But, it, but there's what the people who really, you know, the the school of economists who really developed these ideas, the so-called regulation school, they talked about a mode of regulation. Mm. Um, the particular, you know, the idea being that there's a particular. You know, you have the general features of capitalism, which are always the same: it's the private accumulation of capital, the exploitation of wage labour, the circulation of commodities. But then there's loads of different ways you can do that. You can do that with slavery or without slavery. You can do that with equal rights for women or not with mm. equal rights for women. Yeah, yeah. You can do that with publicly funded schools, not with publicly funded schools. And then, so you call the different systems that emerge within those parameters. You know, you call or well, they call them different things. Actually, they call them modes of regulation or uh, regimes of accumulation. It doesn't really matter. But Fordism is one of those, and then it starts to break down at the end of the 60s, as you say. And that moment of breaking down, you can see it, as, a, as you just say, you can see it as a crisis for the society, and it is experienced as a crisis for many people. You know, By the mid-70s, it's clear that many people in America and Britain believe their societies are going through a deep crisis. Mm. It's also an opportunity. It's an opportunity for people on the left, mm. for radicals who are hoping that they're going to use this, they're going to push beyond the limits of the post-war settlement. To a, a more utopian more democratic freer kind of society it's a, but it also it's a massive opportunity for the right and people on the political right start to say well maybe we could do stuff we haven't been able to get away dream of since the 30s you know maybe we could go back to mass unemployment and get away with it you know maybe we could privatize loads of this stuff that's been taken into public ownership over the past few decades absolutely
0: i mean yeah. and this is all i was just going to say indeed that there's this kind of it's always within you know within capital within you know stock markets etc that you know a recession a recession basically is always a, a new opportunity to kind of make make even more money yeah there's exactly. always, there always this kind of a, you know this I always had this off for a long time had this naive assumption that if the stock markets are going down that's not that's not good for the investors but actually there are there's, there are subsections of investors who see this as the, the best way to make money around the timings of buying and selling and all the rest of it. So, um, yeah, so the a crisis is not only a kind of opportunity for progressives, uh, of course, but, but we, it would be good, I guess, to sort of try and, like, think just a little bit more about what, why this crisis in Fordism is coming about, because we've sort of talked about a little bit the, the boredom and the frustrations experienced by, you know, for want of a better term, young people or, you know, or political activists with the uh, Fordist settlement around a whole range of kind of uh, issues to do with rights, to do with lifestyle, um, you know, satisfaction with with you know with with how one was one, one was living, um, but there are of course other kind of you know more kind of you know technological and economic trends that also lead to this kind of this sort of apparent need for the system to kind of somehow be changed, uh, you know, not only from without, but also from within. So, you know, like we should kind of outline some of these before, you know, we look further as to kind of, as to how, you know, this shift to post warism came about. So um, there's lots of things going on, aren't there? There's, I mean, there's, you know, cybernetic revolution. Uh, you were talking the other day about the kind of, you know, the introduction of containers into to shipping. I had quite a fun. Didn't tell you, I had quite a funny experience with that. I was kind of thought I didn't really know about this. It was really interesting, so I looked up, tried to look up something about shipping containers, and uh, I was like, "Bloody hell!" You know, do you know? You know the person who's like responsible for the transformation of contain. You know, the introduction of containerization, if that's the word. It is. uh, I was like, "It's Malcolm McLaren." I couldn't <laughs> believe it. I, was like, I had no idea. <laughs> then, then I looked again. It's not Malcolm McLaren.
1: It's <laughs> Malcolm McLean. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I really thought the, room, the that, guy right. who
0: invented punk and then helped
1: helped like bring hip hop to the public eye had also been responsible for <laughs> the containerization of the global shipping <laughs> industry. Anyway, why don't
0: you? Why don't you? So you obviously know a bit more about this than I do. Well, I
1: didn't know that. I didn't know that. <laughs> well, you know, it's now stuck in my mind forever. It was Malcolm McLaren who <laughs> invented containers. So, well, I. Well, yeah, the the phrase, I mean, it's a phrase I like to use, the the cybernetic revolution is this phrase for the whole, the introduction of of computer technologies, microelectronics, and the various kind of communication networks they make possible. And this kind of goes alongside containerization in other words you know the introduction of these massive automated shipping container systems which just make the potential volume of global trade much larger and also the number of people you need to employ in the global shipping industry to get it done much smaller so that the uh, the dockers unions kind of lose the power they'd had for for much of the past century and all of these things together of course will they make possible all kinds of things which we're now really familiar with, which weren't really phenomena of of, man- of, the, of global manufacturing before the end of the 60s, like they make it possible for companies to relocate their manufacturing plants to places which are far away from their core markets, in, including to places where labour is much cheaper, wages are lower. Governments are friendlier to capital and less friendly to workers and trade unions. This is the the key change which produces kind of reintroduces mass unemployment to the uh, British, uh, I would say British, American, French, and Italian economies at least. Over this period, it also and it just on a more fundamental level, actually, I think the cybernetic revolution, if you like, it, it leads to a whole a world of. I mean, the other thing to mention is robotics, you know, the introduction of you know, automated systems into manufacturing really ends... The need for all these workers on assembly lines, and all those workers on assembly lines had been the backbone of the trade union movement, and therefore the the political power base for the social democratic and labor parties, and and the democratic party in the United States. And that was why we got all these social reforms in the decades after the war. So, on some level, once you don't have, once you don't need all those workers on assembly lines anymore, the rug has been pulled out from the kind of organized working class, and and really, to some extent, the whole basis for the post-war welfare state settlement. And on some level, I think you really, you, you, I mean, I, my perspective on this sort of macro historical perspective is that we we'll really, you know, you have the industrial revolution from the kind of mid 18th century into the 19th century, and that involves a complete change in the way people live in most parts of the world. And it's really destructive, and poor people mostly see their standard of living and their life expectancy decline uh, quite dramatically for several generations. Then eventually, over the course of the 19th century, what happens is people who've been forced to go live in cities instead of in the countryside where their ancestors had lived for thousands of years they're forced to work in these factories etc they figure out how to use this new context you know the new context which also includes mass communications in newspapers and railways and they figure out how to form unions and political parties and they eventually manage to get themselves organized in order to you know make demands on on the capitalist class and to you know create welfare institutions and to lower, and to raise wages, et cetera, and, in, in, and create much better lives for themselves. And really the culminating point of that history is the late 60s. That, that's the high point of that history, really, which is sort of almost 200 years. And then the, what the cybernetic revolution does is it brings in a whole new paradigm, really, where most of those organisational techniques that worked under industrial capitalism, they don't really work anymore. You can't organise a union in the same way now because... Uh, you're not going to a factory to to work and seeing those people every day, and because even if you even if you do have a strike in your factory, they can just you know, close it and open a new one on the other side of the world. And so, for all kinds of reasons, this this has all kinds of no- knock on effects. It also has incredible radical potential, and it's obvious to people, to commentators on the political left and right, actually, from right from the start that computers could also enable people to organise much bigger unions than they've ever had before, and to you know really. You know, to really kind of you know, challenge the, the remaining power of, of capital, for example. And that's why when the socialist government in Chile tries to in, introduce a system which is basically a kind of primitive national internet at the end of the 60s as part of their program of building a socialist democracy, uh, that terrifies the American government so much that the Chile becomes the, the place of the CIA targets to, uh, to instigate a military coup and start implementing neoliberal policies for the first time. So that's the, that's the broad context of the cybernetic revolution and we're still living through it and we still don't really know where it's going. And that's the broad context in which all this is happening. But this also, this is something that obviously starts this shift. The the cybernetic revolution is something we hear in music, you know, from really early on. You know, some of the most out there kind of avant-garde experimental music in the late sixties is computer music, it's electronic music, it's music, it's people like Wendy Carlos doing kind of electronic synthesis. And we thought we should hear then some uh, an important piece of electronic music from this period from nineteen seventy two but uh do you want i think you should introduce this yeah
0: well um I mean I was also going to say that you know it's one of the things that also happens in nineteen seventy two and we're kind of required to mention in a podcast that reflects on music and the dance floor is that that was the year that the Technics Turntable was kind of developed, right? Right, right, yeah. So this is a, I mean, and it's, you know, so one of the things we wanted want to know is that it was kind of, it was developed in Japan. It's during this period that, you know, Japan and Germany, become kind of ever more kind of present as economies that are developing rapidly and embracing, successfully embracing new technology in a way that isn't so straightforwardly apparent in the United Kingdom and the United States. Um, so it's the Technics turntable is a, is a symbol of this. Of course, it's also something that becomes, you know, picked up very enthusiastically by DJs who, who are working in, in New York City. So it's a piece of equipment that enables DJs to kind of work more effectively. The direct drive kind of makes the whole process of queuing up uh, and mixing records uh, much much smoother, much easier. This is also an example of a piece of technology. That one could say one could say is kind of displacing, for want of a better term, older technologies. Uh, and those older technologies aren't just older models of turntables developed by other companies, but also arguably the technologies of musical instruments. Uh, all of a sudden, if a, you know the the DJ had always threatened to displace the kind of performing live musician, the live band, uh, in, in part because they were cheaper to employ and therefore the cost of entry to any entertainment where they were playing would also be cheaper. So DJing already kind of had this appeal uh, and it was already a way for employing, you know, one person to kind of generate the sounds that could of, you know, only otherwise be generated by m- many musicians. Um, but some of the problems associated with DJing, of course, were the, was the primitive nature of a lot of the technology. So this was a, the, the introduction of the Technics Turntable uh, in 72 was a way of kind of embedding the kind of early rise of DJ culture and enabling it to become more effective. I mean, it doesn't anticipate all of the things that will, you know, the many myriad developments that will happen within technology that will further marginalize live musicians, arguably, but will then also lead to, you know, the mass democratization, one could say, of music making through uh, the cybernetic revolution. So this is something we're going to come to uh much further down the line presumably on this podcast. But we wanted to reflect on not only this, but also the fact that you know Japan and Germany were kind of were sort of looming uh as these kind of you know increasingly powerful players within within the global economy. Uh, in terms of music, we thought it'd be good to listen to some Tomita actually, Asao Tomita, uh who was one of the kind of pioneering figures uh within electronic music, uh based based in Japan introduced all sorts of kind of, uh, ex- experimentations with the use of synthesizer technology, Oh, uh, his kind of, his best is one of his best record recognized kind of recordings was, um, Snowflakes are dancing, which was a rearrangement of, uh, Claude Debussy piece. Um, but it, we, we, whilst we were kind of listening to, to his music, deciding which one we wanted to play, uh, whilst we were preparing for this, we did kind of first, uh, listen to, uh. His version of Imagine, which, <laughs> which I think we should play. Um, so let's do that now. So yeah, there was something. So that that, that record was. Um, I mean, it's not it's not the best piece of music we've we've played on this show so far, probably. But there is, <laughs> I suppose, there's, there's something kind of um, sweet about the way that you know you had a kind of you know you know a Japanese musician. Uh, And composer embracing new technology and and turning one of these kind of classic kind of songs of kind of the rock canon, for want of a better term, you know, imagine into something which is isn't about kind of, you know, an acoustic rendition of a piece of music or a heartfelt piece of, you know, heartfelt rendition of a piece of music and actually turns into something that's attempting to be futuristic. Uh, I mean, arguably it doesn't work very well, but the, the symbolism is rich of kind of, you know, of the the embrace of progress and the attempt to transpose this onto kind of
1: music. And so this track is from his 1974 album, uh, from Tamita's 74 album, Snowflakes Are Dancing, and it's the title track. And it's really sort of fascinating. I think it's fascinating that he shifts from doing, really just doing, doing rock songs mm. on... On the Moog, on the Moog, we should say correctly, as a, as a sort of novelty thing. Really, it's just a sort of not. It's I think it is seen. Certainly, it's heard by Western audiences as just a sort of novelty record, just showing off this new technology with its weird noises. In, and instead he goes back to Debussy, you know, the great impressionist composer who's, whose music is obviously much more suited in some ways to finding expression uh, through an analog synthesizer. And mm. the result is, I mean, some of the tracks on that album are also just kind of weird novelty tracks, but this is, you know, this is really quite beautiful. We're making this podcast because we believe that alternative history and radical ideas should be given as much airtime as possible, yet it's increasingly difficult for knowledge of this kind to circulate through the mainstream media or university sector. We love doing it and we're committed to making sure it's available for free to anyone who wants it, but at the end of the day, for us and our producer Matt, this is what we do for our jobs. This kind of work isn't just a hobby and we've each permanently lost a significant chunk of our regular income due to the pandemic. We won't be able to carry on doing this without some financial support, so if you have the means and you like what we're doing, please consider supporting us via our Patreon. You can find the link in the show notes, and thanks. So one reason it's really interesting to hear some Japanese music, and in a moment we'll hear a bit of German music, is that, well, one of the theories by an economic historian called Robert Brenner, that has been quite influential, about why this shift occurs, the shift from Fordism to something else, although he doesn't use that language, and he wouldn't really. You know, what is the nature of the crisis at the end of the sixties, early seventies? Well, his perspective is that well, it's really it isn't really sort of an, an inevitable result of the cybernetic revolution. It's not fundamentally because of this pressure from social groups who've been, you know, suppressed or marginalised or, or even over empowered by the post-war settlement. Really, what it's about is the declining profitability. Of British, American, French, Italian manufacturing companies, and the reason for that is because of the competition from Germany and Japan. And basically, Germany and Japan, the two most efficient sort of industrial capitalist states, arguably going back to the nineteenth century, you know, got completely hammered by the war, and it's taken them a generation to recover from the war. But having recovered from the war, they've caught up. In fact, they've overtaken to some extent because they're using like new manufacturing techniques that we've already alluded to a bit they're using more automation in their factories and they're finding other things to use their workers for partly because they've got really they've got a very i mean traditionally the japanese and you know japan and germany and their governments and their ruling classes do have quite different attitudes to how you do capitalism you know they're much less ruthlessly exploitative than the uh anglo-american sort of ruling class traditionally i'm not saying they're not i'm not saying they're nice or good people they've done all kinds of very terrible things but there tends to be an idea especially in japan that it's just it's just con- culturally unacceptable for example for ceos to earn too much more than than their workers and so you end up with and also there tends to be a, an expectation that governments will play a very strong role in kind of managing and, and or coordinating national infrastructure and industrial policy. And the consequences of all that is that, you know, all the other things being equal, the German and Japanese industrial economies will, you know, will overtake the Western ones within a few decades unless they've been destroyed by a war recently. And, and that arguably that that happened twice actually in the 20th century, but there were two massive wars. So the last of those massive wars is out of the way. And so Brenner's argument is basically that's the only explanation you need, really, for what's going on in places like Britain and the States. What's going on in places like Britain and the States is the golden age of full employment is over. It's over because the companies aren't making enough profits to keep paying everybody these ever-increasing wages and keep expanding the number of people they're employing. You know, And that is because their own profits are declining, because they're facing greater competition in global markets from German and Japanese competitors. And I think, I mean, a lot of of commentators would say, we would probably say that it's more complicated than that. There's other stuff going on, but certainly this is something that's happening. And one of the things that's happening, as I've said, is that those German and Japanese manufacturers are using techniques of automation in the factories in new and innovative ways to massively increase their productivity and lower their production costs and make their goods that much cheaper on the global market. And so we're going to play a bit of music, (laughs) which is... um, Giorgio Moroder, the great German pioneer of electronic musical production. This is a track from his uh, his titled Son of My Father, uh, Son of My Father from 1972. It's the first album where he used a Moog synthesizer, uh, the great analog synthesizer of the age, and the track is literally called Automation. Automation.
0: Love is. Love is. Love is the message. All right. So we had these. We had this kind of this kind of the Brenner idea of what was going on and around the sort of pressures that were being placed on Fordism, which in- included you know the increased competitiveness and you know efficient, efficiency of the systems that were being you know developed in in Germany, as we just said, and Japan, as we were saying previously. Um, but there are, other, there are other kind of, you know, theories of this kind of the reason that uh, Fordism was breaking down and opening up the, the possibility of kind of new structures of economic and social organization. So the, the second one of those, uh, do you want to re- tell us about that, which is really D- D- David Harvey's you know, analysis?
1: Well, when we're, when we're talking about this, we keep making David Harvey the sort of, you know, the figure who's responsible for this, you know, the great Marxist scholar and and sort of geographer. I don't think we're being entirely fair. So, I mean, Harvey is one of the sort of Marxist critics who, not dissimilar from Brenner in this respect, tends to not really see anything positive happening after the 60s. So tends not to be talking much about women's liberation or gay liberation or even the kind of, you know, you know, the delegitimation of at least the most explicit forms of racism that have taken place and indeed the kind of general expansion of certain kinds of personal freedom that have all taken place in the past few decades. He tends to present a narrative when he's talking either about, either when he's talking about uh, the shift to post-modernity, the, which is he identifies with the end of, of Fordism, or whether he's talking in his famous little book about neoliberalism, he's talking about the shift to neoliberalism, the kind of shift to a policy regime in many countries focused on you know, privatisation, tax cuts, low wages, etc. Whatever he's talking about, he tends to focus on those negatives. And to the extent that he sort of mentions culture at all, he seems to be allied with accounts which see things like the counterculture is largely just anticipating the sort of individualism of neoliberal culture and postmodern culture from the 1980s onwards, and really sort of laying the groundwork actually for the rise of the new right with the, the rejection of the sort of traditional politics of the left. And he is quite. He is quite
0: explicit about the way that you know artists collude with the kind of you know with capital and are you know and don't have don't have you know are you know and there's he's got I mean there's students of his uh, I think it's Sharon Zukin who kind of and there's a case to be made you know about the way that artists I mean we will get onto this as well but you know the way that you know art, and David David Mancusa was of course part of this movement. The way that artists and musicians and people who wanted to live you know explore new forms of living moved into you know what was then called the cast iron district we now think of as sort of soho and noho and tribeca uh, moved into these lost spaces and for many of them it became a kind of capital investment opportunity and then when you know advertising exploded in the 80s and wanted to start you know commissioning art pieces for their kind of you know uh, atriums um you know during that period the artists were only too happy to kind of take on these kind of uh these commissions and that there was also an exploding kind of art market that was you know in which kind of you know the the value of art went up in line with the value of, of Wall Street so you know he, he made a case and there was a case to be made I suppose we think there's a, another case to be made as well but uh he was he's quite a brief history of neoliberalism he's he's quite explicit i think about the way that you know art and you know artists were kind of Embrace the idea of freedom and, you know, also embrace the idea of of making money, including through property investment. I suppose what he doesn't kind of get as far as I can see is that, you know, it's it's probably indeed it's like the 1% of artists uh, who, you know, like benefit from this, like the 1% of, you know, the population has benefited from the, you know, the, the, you know, the rollout of neoliberalism and the different, you know, permutations that followed that.
1: Yeah that well that's all true and also I think there's also there's other people who make similar arguments in a, in some ways in a more explicitly culturally conservative vein so mm-hmm. Adam Curtis yeah this documentary maker with shows like Can't Get You Out of My Head like repeatedly more or less attributes you know the rise of neoliberalism and kind of contemporary individualism to the counterculture as if they know those that was the core cool, you know it was it was the cause of it in some way that this kind of romantic turn to the self and the search for authentic personal experience like undermined the possibility of collective solidarity and community that had been had made possible the post-war welfare state. I mean, Curtis's analysis is very confused, and uh, I keep telling people I'm going to record a, an episode of my uh, one of my other podcasts, Culture, Power, Politics. All about that, but I don't know if I'll ever get around to it. But that's one account. But it's quite a widespread account in, on, on sections of the left to this day. Like they basically the hippies cause neoliberalism.
0: Well, so we could just say briefly, I mean, just to say briefly, there's long been a suspicion on significant parts of the left of ideas of pleasure, of, of even yeah, you know of even aspects yeah. of, of culture that is associated with pleasure, because to yeah, be exactly. engage in that is to not be kind of you know focusing on the serious stuff of social transformation, uh, perhaps is not quite realising that part of social transformation probably needs to be the
1: exploration ways of, of enjoying ourselves socially with each other. That's absolutely right. And then probably the sort of third position in a way, the, the, the third explanation, if, if one explanation of what's going on between the 60s and 70s is just, look, Germany and Japan are back, you know, there's not enough rue, there's not enough cake, in the capitalist cake is being cut too small, profits are falling, Wages are are coming down. Everything follows from that. That's one. Other one related but slightly different explanation is uh, all these kind of degenerate, you know, middle class, the the new degenerate middle class, you know, which is led by the hippies and just becomes everybody by the end of the century is, is so obsessed with themselves and their personal experience and just accepts that that's a kind of substitute for living in a decent society, and that that's what kind of undermines and ultimately wrecks the peaceful settlement. Which again, I do, I do have to stress to listeners: like Har- that's a really crude version of that mm. account. Like, Harvey wouldn't say that. I mean, Harvey just isn't that himself. Isn't that interested in in issues of culture? I think, and he thinks that his argument is one I would largely agree with. That fi- that finance capital, you know, the people running the banks, take advantage of this crisis unity we've described to reassert their power over the rest of society.
0: Yeah, I mean exactly. I think mean, this is the point we need to, Harvey is not saying that it's kind of, you know, it's a bunch of artists who who lead to the rise of post-fordism per se. It's, it's maybe I'm not understanding it uh, correctly, but he's he's kind I mean, you're of right. I think he's was- sort of saying that it's a kind of, you know, it's like capital leads the change. And it's the artists who just kind of absentmindedly find themselves... Quite- yeah, right,
1: right, right. Correct. Yeah, correct. And, but then there's this third position, or what we're identifying as the third position, which would be associated with a different group of kind of radical and sort of Marxist thinkers, people like Tony Negri, Antonio Negri, the Italian philosopher, and various of his collaborators and, and students. And I think would also be associated to some extent with the approach taken by people like Stuart Hall, who were analysing some of these changes later in the 70s. And also, I, I've written about this as an academic, and, and I've said that I've also included Boltanski and Chapello as people whose, whose research seems to support this argument. And this argument is, no, really it starts from below. The, the, the first group, the first, the real pressure on the post-war settlement, on Fordism. It comes from women, it comes from gay people, it comes from young people, it comes from idealistic utopian students, it comes from young workers who are sick of the tedium and the kind of lack of participation in, in key decisions about their own working lives in, in Fordist manufacturing industry. And it, that's where the pressure really comes from. And that's what sort of topples and makes unsustainable the post-war settlement. Of course, everything that follows from that Involves, for example bankers finance capitalists as harvey says taking full advantage of the crisis unity and asserting themselves and managing to do all kinds of things they had not been able to do for several previous decades It, it also involves you know very you know changing rates of profit and changing so wage levels in various countries, etc. But from this perspective, it's kind of important to understand that it was the desire to push beyond the limitations of Fordism which really drove the shift more than anything else. And that is really relevant for our concerns on on this show, because from our perspective, the, the challenge to Fordism, which is represented by the counterculture and by so many of the composite strands that... Are, are, reflect, are expressed so powerfully in music of the period. know it is really it is, a, it is an expression of resistance to and, and rejection of the Fordist settlement, you know and which is animated by the desire for something more, for something better. One reason we're banging on about Fordism on a show which is mostly about sort of music and counterculture is well, Fordism is sort of the answer to the question what what is it these guys were against? everybody from the Rolling Stones and the Kinks moaning about how it's boring in the suburbs and they can't get any satisfaction through to the Black Panthers you know who were really trying to make a social revolution including you know the hippies who want to kind of drop out and, and take acid and find meaning that way including the women's liberation movement including gay liberation what do they all? including the young workers of say the shop stewards movement in Britain who are demanding you know better wages better working conditions more autonomy at work there's one thing that they all against. And the name for that thing is sort of is Fordism to, to a certain extent. It's a particular form of capitalism which has delivered all kinds of good things for people, but is becoming increasingly, you know, it, it, it demands forms of repression which people are no longer willing to tolerate.
0: Yeah, I mean just to say quickly, I mean they might not be calling it Fordism, but it's about that kind of yeah, it's about that kind of routinized, dull, mechanical, unthinking, you know, semi-dead kind of way of living, uh, which doesn't seem to be vital or vibrant or, you know. Yeah, exactly. That's
1: a key, um, it's a completely key point. Of course, no one right now, I mean, no one's using the term Fordism. The people start using the term Fordism to explain the things we're talking about around the early 80s. By the time, by which time people can see, oh shit, something has really changed. Like something, something fell apart over the course of the seventies. What was that thing that fell apart? And then they start looking back to Gramsci writing about the beginning of Fordism in the thirties, and then they say, oh, the Gramsci called it Fordism. Yeah, that's a good name for it. It was Fordism, this thing that has now fallen apart in front of our eyes. And then they start. People are saying, well, why? Why did it fall apart? You know, what what pushed it to fall apart? And then then that's when you get into the, all the kind of debates we're referring to now you know to come back to music one of the things that's going on in a really interesting way in the first couple of decades in the 70s is this sort of um, first couple of years in the 70s first couple of years sorry (laughs) we love the 70s so much we're turning into each year as a decade unto itself the first couple of years of the 70s is this sense that um there's this really widespread, you know, a- adoption of sort of countercultural imagery or, you know, football hooligans have long hair at this time. You know, songs about revolution are kind of in the pop charts and, uh, you know, songs about union, you know, being part of a union are in the pop charts and there's this very widespread rejection of convention so for example glam rock you know which is mostly just mostly popular with kind of working class white you know men and you know has this kind of stomping sort of football terrace sound to it is called glam rock because it's associated with people also you know putting on eyeliner and la- and lame and the kind of explicit you know queer uh, self identification of people like david bowie This incredible kind of rejection of conventional you know, masculinity. And then the other, th- the thing which is sort of notorious now in kind of mainstream rock history, which is going on at this time, is the development of progressive rock. I mean, the much maligned kind of musical genre, wherein you know rock artists with lots of money from their record companies will try to make these exploratory, long, you know, very kind of self-important sometimes kind of albums. And uh, I mean, we'll talk later about the, the kind of issues with the retrospective definition of that as something to be you know regretted or opposed by the punks but i think like on its own terms and in its own historical context you know what's going on there is sort of extraordinary it's 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 music which is only really belongs in a society of plenty you know only in a society in which work the the amount of work people have to do is declining in which um you know, you imagine everybody having more and more leisure, you know, artists have all these resources and time at their disposable. People, you know, pe- music fans have bigger speakers in their, la- in their living rooms and better quality record players and kind of weed to smoke. And they can, you know, people have time and leisure to just sort of luxuriate in soundscapes. That's the world in which music like this makes, makes sense. So a great example would be, a track called the soft weed factor kind of classic noodling you know instrumental Uh, from uh, the Canterbury brand Soft Machine who are one of the great kind of British well they're sort of progressive rock but they're also often referred to as jazz rock and they're they're a really interesting group of musicians because they all sort of they started out doing something recognisable as progressive rock and they all got bored of it and became basically became jazz musicians um, as any musician should do um, eventually (laughs) so 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 that's a really interesting and, and I think this for me you know it is sort of music for after the revolution but it's music which is imagining you know invites us to imagine what it would feel like to 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 be existing in a in a society no longer you know dominated by the necessity of everyday labor So that's enough of that. Let's get back to uh, parties. <laughs> <laughs> so- yes. Um, I mean, I think, you know, we almost, we, we,
0: we need to make perhaps the most obvious point of all, um, which is this shift uh, from, in, you know, we say Fordism and post-Fordism. We, you can each equally say kind of industrialism, industrial culture and post-industrial culture, right? These are the, the shifts that are yeah, going on. yeah and um you know this was absolutely fundamental to you know you know one of the central concerns of this podcast which is you know how the dance floor can uh became you know became reconceived as this sort of utopian space with david mancuso clearly the key pioneer in this regard um i mean his story of course is also this story of you know from growing up in the children's home in Utica to kind of then moving to, to New York City, but soon, and initially living on the Upper West Side. But when the opportunity came, and uh, we'll, we'll be kind of returning to, the, to some of this story in, in future episodes, no doubt, but when the opportunity came, of course, moving into this lost space on, on 647 Broadway, and, you know, what was going on here was this kind of key transformation that was, was occurring uh, in this period of the, le- of the second half, in particular of the 1960s, going through right throughout the 1970s, which is that downtown was initially known as the cast iron district. It was New York's manufacturing base. That was where, that was where the, you know, mo- a lot of the employment in New York City was based a lot of the my a lot of the workers were migrant workers a lot of them lived in kind of cramped housing conditions uh, in the lower east side but as manufacturing uh, and uh, the us industry went into decline during the 19 especially the latter part of the 1960s these spaces started to open up and this was also about the This was also about the reinvention of space up until this point artists had sort of largely lived on the upper east side in these you know well, you know, these rather lovely, but you know, uh, classically organized apartments for domestic living. But loft living just kind of transformed, you know, the way that people thought of, yeah, of the way that they could conduct their, their lives. You know, places that were homes suddenly became places of work. Uh, you know, mixed practices went on in these spaces. Also, new forms of socialization. And of course, this is, this is what the loft was. Even the name of the loft is basically a reference to a warehouse space. So in these spaces were you know had been housed previously, you know New York's light manufacturing and light industry was kind of slowly in decline, and it was it was really interesting that the use of these the, these spaces got puts a new usage uh, as dance spaces, and it becomes kind of you know we can then I mean we'll come back to this we can't do it now, uh, but we can think about you know what, the way in which new forms of work. Began to take place in, in these spaces. I mean, one but one thing we can just say kind of quickly, I suppose, is that yeah, lots of kind of artists were living in these spaces, and that was kind of you know one of their most pop, one of the most popular ways of kind of using them. Um, but a lot of the early parties, and we're going to go when we get back to kind of talking about the kind of straight up kind of dance floor history. Uh, In kind of, I guess, not next episode, but the one after, we're going to be looking at the the way that uh, you know numerous kind of parties opened up in these spaces. They were perfect for partying, and central to this this phenomenon was the DJ and the DJ, her or himself. And to be frank, you know, almost all of them were men at this point. Although there were some significant women DJs, Bert Lockett was a key uh, mobile DJ, and other significant female DJs sorts that also kind of came through in the nineteen seventies. But yeah, we should probably acknowledge that many of them were men. Many of them were, were gay men. Many of them were Italian-American gay men or African-American gay men. But, but the DJs were these new flexible workers. Um, so, you know, we have this, this is the, the, the heart of the shift of Fordist to post-Fordist capitalism in a sense is captured in this space. And what also gets captured here, I think, and again, we'll maybe return to this some other time, is the way in which... Um, this practice is never, can never simply be reduced to kind of a form of, you know, collusion with, with capital. Uh, this is very definitively a, a countercultural expression that is also looking to create new forms of work for people who had been, we should also, I guess, know, marginalized within the US workforce. Because up to that point, if you talked about an American worker, it was fundamentally understood that you were talking about a white working class person. There's one big party going on all the time. Sometimes we get to tune into it. The rest of the
1: time, there's love is the message. It's interesting to think about the fact that, you know, we mentioned Antonio Negri before, and he was part of this movement, this current in Italy, of philosophy and activism that in the 60s and 70s, it took on different names. It was sometimes known as, you know, by Italian words, which would would translate just as workerism and sometimes as autonomism. And it was really about sort of challenging, you know, power relations within the workplace and both kind of, you know, recognising the power of workers in the workplace, but also indeed trying to imagine and go beyond the societies who were dominated by, you know, wage labour is the only way in which most people can survive. And I think that that sort of ties in with what you were saying about, you know, there is kind of, there's arguably there is a sort of division there's a, or it, there's a difference at least between musicians who want to keep doing a fairly established form of musicianship as an established form of work and, and people who are trying to do something more sort of experimental in different ways. And, and you know, there's an affinity, there's an understand, there is a sort of affinity between the leading edge of capitalism, which wants to computerise things and automate things and use electronics and use networks uh, to, you know, make its production methods more efficient and sophisticated and, and the leading edge of musical production, which wants to, and the leading edge of DJ culture in some ways, which is trying to find all these new ways, new ways of inhabiting space, new ways of making music, new ways of changing the sort of distribution of labour, the division of labour in, in the musical production and performance process, but just because there is a sort of affinity between those things doesn't mean that they're really allied to each other. Just because there's a sort of re- resemblance, and because they because I because I think our analysis would be they're all trying to take advantage of the opportunities presented by the cybernetic revolution and the breakdown of Fordism, but whereas you know capitalism really wants to take it in the direction of uh, everybody including djs and musicians uh, getting paid less for their labor so they can accumulate more profits you know the people we're concerned with are mostly trying to produce forms of culture which are you know pushing beyond the limitations of fordist capitalism or to some extent any form of capitalism so you know that, and that's you know leads to the idea of to some the question to some extent of like, well, what is you know what is it that people like David Mancuso or Nicky Ciano or people like this, like what is it they're trying to produce? What is it they're actually trying to do in in kind of engaging in a form of musical practice? Who's who's ultimate output is a you know a 9 hour dance party i mean what do you think about that
0: yeah well i mean this is this is the we get to the crux of it in a sense or another yeah another kind of you know key kind of element of this of this kind of transformational period which is that instead of economies and people being focused on the production of goods uh, there's much more of a focus on on the kind of generation of experience and this this gets reflected in you know in all sorts of ways as post fordist culture develops, you know instead of producing goods we want to buy goods or we kind of or we, so we go shopping or we or we or there's this whole kind of but even more than that I'd say there's this kind of you go out to restaurants you go out to kind of you know concerts you go out to the cinema you go on holidays uh, you have, you know exp- explore sorts of immersive you know immersive experiences. So there's a way in which the what people are spending their money on uh, changes as well. It might be the, you know, I mean this is, you know, this has come to a new level now where people will either, you know, listen to music for free or will pay for a relatively cheap subscription service to to listen to kind of all you know, pretty much all the music that's been recorded for the cost of maybe ten pounds or ten dollars or whatever a, a month. But then we'll, you know, happily spend maybe you know 100 pounds going to see their favourite artist playing a concert. Uh, that's the cost of an entire year of music listening, arguably. So we can see how this, this shift to experience uh, has, you know, has become, you know, has gone even further. But we can we can trace this back. I mean, I'm not saying that everything we're, we're not saying, or I'm not saying that everything begins in 1970. But it's around this period that people, you know, um, want to start. Shifting the way that you know their position in the economy and what they're doing in the economy, and it comes it comes back to you know what you were saying earlier about the you know the romantic aspect, uh, as in with a capsule R of kind of count- of counterculture. It's about experience and postmodernism, kind of in a way, sort of all the the opening up of culture uh, is about exploring these new forms of experience. So um, a record we were going to play at, at this point um, is going to be, or was going to be, is going to be, is uh, the JB's uh, Give Me Some More. Uh, As a record that David played at The Loft. Uh, it was a really popular record throughout New York City. And, um, you know, Give Me Some More. It's like that's kind of one of the things that was going on is like people tasted this culture and they wanted more of it. Yeah.
1: That, I mean, that's a great, you know, it is, it's really interesting to think about it in terms of, you know, give me some more, you know, give me demands, because actually, I mean, the way I often try to express this idea, that what undermined Fordism in the end wasn't just the sort of evil machinations of capitalists or their deployment of new technologies. The, I, I say, well, what it, what it was, was a whole set of new democratic demands being made by people like young workers people of colour, women, gay people, and there were demands that ultimately couldn't be met by capitalism in its existing form. Now, later on, they would be met, to some extent, in in very truncated forms by the new kind of capitalism that would later emerge. The demand for gay liberation would partially be met by the sort of normalisation of gay relationships and their acceptance by mainstream and corporate, corporate culture. But that really wasn't what the kind of radicals of the gay liberation movement of this moment had in mind, what they had in mind was something much more revolutionary. And what they had in mind was a culture in which, you know, relationships would be much more free and egalitarian for everybody, but it would also be sort of politicized in a sense that, you know, they would be up for constant discussion and negotiation rather than people being given these sort of templates they would have to follow the the married couple or whatever. And, um, I think it's um it's really not an accident and it's something that various sort of commentators and historians have subsequently noted that you know DJ culture disco culture dance music culture you know at this moment in the early 70s it is increasingly you know, it's very much a, a, a musical and cultural site at which you are seeing gay people black people Uh, latino latina people you know people um you know women you know all finding forms of expression arguably you know in in a very kind of mixed context which is you know arguably doesn't have any real sort of precedent i think yeah yeah absolutely um but this really is
0: about it's about the breakup of the idea of the worker as well uh and also what it might mean to you know the forms that this work might take as well, because, of course, the dance floor sort of very quickly opened up, a you know, a whole new array of forms of employment. Uh, there was more employment for musicians there were, who would, go on, who would soon go on to be recording music for this culture. There was obviously employment for DJs, but there were the people who worked the doors, and then if it was in a disc, a public discotheque where there was a bar, there was more work for bar staff. It was a the emergence, it was a kind of, a real. This was the beginning of a real acceleration of the nighttime economy. I suppose what we now maybe call the nighttime economy. Also, this wasn't just the kind of. This wasn't just these developments were of of, of exploring new opportunities for work and reconceptualization of work in this kind of shifting economic um, milieu. Um, clearly wasn't just kind of organized directly around counterculture and it wasn't just organized around expressions such as you know dj culture and dance floor culture the part the passage of the 1964 civil rights act uh, had triggered triggered all sorts of grassroots struggle for employment justice that began to see black and female workers gain rights and benefits um, within the workplace so there was already during the second half of the 60s the ph- a phenomenon of workers who had been marginalized within the trade union movement gaining kind of more rights in the workplace and this was already you know seen by some as kind of a as undermining the kind of broader kind of you know idea of a unified working class but as I've already as I've already kind of mentioned uh, maybe you want to comment on this I don't know but the you know this this kind of unified working class had also marginalized you know significant sections of the of the workforce so something had to give
1: Well, it it wasn't. I mean, it was. It was only the working class had only been unified in that sense through processes of stratification that had, you know, secured the privileges of white male, uh, heterosexual workers at the expense of other other groups. So, and that was arguably. I mean, the perspective of people like Negri would be that itself was a sort of compromise made between capital, the state, and the workers' movement in the face of you know the much more radical wave of labor organization in the United States in the, say, in the in the first decade of the 20th century, you, you had organizations like the Industrial Workers of the World, who had a, you know, early in the 20th century, self, very self-consciously feminist, anti-racist, anti-colonial, anti-imperialist, sexually libertarian politics. And, you know, part of the compromise made if you like, you know, which made possible the sort of the post-war world of America and and the whole kind of capitalist world of which America was, was the leading nation was this sort of compromise which contained a lot of those energies. So one of the things that's really happening, actually, in the early 70s in particular, is a lot of that sort of suppressed those suppressed forms of working class modes of being and relating to the world are re-emerging in these kind of radical forms. And that's what's powering a lot of the musical innovation, I think, at, at that time. And I guess, uh, you know, almost maybe like one of the most perfect kind of expressions of that would be uh, this record. Would be a record. It's, it's surprising in a way we've got we've taken so long to get around to this. This is Marlena Shaw's Woman of the Ghetto, like fantastic piece of powerful political black feminist funk uh, with some really interesting like production features and a, just really compelling sort of dance floor track. I'm a woman. Okay so we've talked about the we talked about fordism last time as an idea and how it was manifest through motown. We talked this time about the sort of crisis of fordism. We've alluded a little bit to the idea that something will emerge that will eventually replace it, this world of flexible labor and the information economy which will eventually in the sort of 80s onwards get named post-Fordism and next time we're going to talk a bit more about some of those developments and some of those ideas and we're going to talk specifically about how you see the first intimations of post-Fordist society and even sort of critiques of post-Fordist society as it emerges in the music uh, of the period 72 to 75. Excellent, can't wait.